welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Pray that as we open your word that you would speak to us. We're here to hear from you. Lord, we are your children. You are our Father. And we desire to be fed by you, to hear from you, to commune with you. And we pray that that's what this would be, that as we open your word, Lord, you yourself would speak to us. We thank you so much that you are so faithful to do this every week. And we pray as we open your word to give us understanding. Um, Lord, we pray that it would be great benefit for our lives, for our relationship with you, for our relationship with others. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're back in First Peter, and we're in a series called Keep Going. And um, this is one of those scripture readings, though, that reminds us that the Bible was written for us, but not directly to us. And the reason I say that is that every part of the Bible was written to a particular audience. And it's very important to understand the historical context on a passage, some passages more than others. I mean, as we're here in this section, it's really important that we understand the historical context because every scripture has an application to every believer throughout all time, right? All of scripture is profitable for us. Some of it takes more understanding of the biblical background, and it's really obvious in this passage because we're seeing things like emperors, we're hearing talk about masters and slaves, and it reminds us immediately that we are not in 21st century California anymore when we're in a passage like that. And that doesn't mean it doesn't apply to us. It just means that we have to spend the time to understand the original context. Um, and then we'll see that it applies to us. Um, next week, we will dig into the part on wives and husbands and all of that. And um, I know there's some sort of sports ball game or something going on. I, I don't have a sports gene, but there's some sort of event that happens next Sunday. But you're not going to want to miss what we're doing because we are going to talk about marriage and, and family. Um, but what was the situation of these original readers? Well, the, origi- the original readers of First Peter's letter, they're, they're in the first verse of the book, and they were people, believers, that lived on the frontier of the Roman Empire. They aren't right center in Rome. They're on the frontier of the Roman Empire in places like Pontius and Galatia and Cappadocia. If your Bible has maps, you can look in the back, and you can see that they're way out on the frontier in these colony areas, and they were a persecuted church, okay? These are not people that are in power. These are not people that, you know, have influence in their community. These are persecuted people. In fact, 1 Peter is all about persecution when you read through it. And these new Christians were were living together as church families, and they were trying to figure out, how do we live faithful in a culture that is increasingly violent to Christianity? Um, this was likely, this was written by Peter, likely in the, in the reign of Nero, but early in the reign, before there was state-sponsored persecution. And so the kind of persecution that was happening at this time was more local, family, village, um, vigilante-type persecution against their faith. And they lived in these colonies along the frontier of the Roman Empire, and like any kind of colonial life, their frustration could run high, it was a dangerous place to live, and people that worshipped Jesus and not the gods, or not Caesar, were seen as rejecting their families, they were seen as unpatriotic, because part of kind of being a part of a nation together is to share the nation's gods, and they were also seen as dangerous and uncaring to society. Because if something bad happens in one of these colonies, guess why that happened? It's because you didn't worship the gods with the rest of us, right? You're actually putting us all in jeopardy by going after this this Hebrew God, Jesus. 
you know? And so there was all kinds of persecution. We see throughout the book that there's persecution that's verbal. We see passages say that they spoke evil of him and slandered him and maligned him and insulted him. It's throughout. But then there's a persecution that's worse, a persecution that is described as a furnace, okay? It says in chapter 1, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. So there's a type of persecution that they're enduring that isn't just verbal, but it's like a furnace melting them. And then Peter warns in chapter 4, verse 17, that it's going to get a whole lot worse. Check this out. He says in chapter 4, verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. He's talking about something coming. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved... What will become of the ungodly and sinners? He's talking about a time of severe persecution that's coming under Nero. It would be state-sponsored. It was going to be insanely brutal, right? And this is the persecution that Jesus talked about when he talked about unless he would shorten the days of that persecution, even the elect wouldn't be saved. I mean, this is, he says that the righteous are scarcely saved in this. And then he gets to the end of the book, and he unmasks who's behind all this persecution. And in 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That behind all this human persecution, they're being hunted by Satan. This is intense, right? This is the kind of situation they're in. Put yourself in their shoes. Think about how terrifying this situation is. In some way, we are in their shoes because the Bible says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But think about these particular people. They have no government protection, way off kind of in the frontier area, and they're, at, they're, they're misunderstood to a large degree. Um, they have no right to exist, and at the mercy of whatever mobs are there. And it's worth spending some time, guys, to think about this context of the persecuted church for a few reasons. And you guys might be surprised where I'm going with this, but I want to really focus this morning on the persecuted church and that we could understand the persecuted church. And I want to um, dig into that for a few reasons. One is that, I don't know if you guys realize, but we're commanded to remember them. Do you realize that? We're commanded to remember the persecuted church. In Hebrews 13.3, it says, Remember those who are in prison. He's not just talking about regular prisoners. If you look in the context of Hebrews, he's talking there about um, Christians that are in prison. He says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you yourself are in the body. We're one body with every believer around the world, and there are 215 million Christians that live in persecuted regions today. Israeli, 215 million Christians that live in persecuted regions. Put that in context. One out of every 12 brothers and sisters you have are right now in persecuted countries. And we're commanded in Hebrews 13 to remember them. And some of them are persecuted in state-sponsored ways. Some of them are persecuted by kind of local, kind of vigilante-type persecution. But they live under this kind of persecution. Some of them both, right? And to put it in context, I have this map. It's from Voice of the Martyrs which would be a great place for you guys to go to have more of an understanding of the persecuted church. But this is a Voice of the Martyrs um, watch list, and it's got the top uh, 50 worst places to be a Christian, number one being uh, North Korea, then Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Sudan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, India. That's the top 10. 
and then you have, you know, going off to the side here. And then what they have on their site is you can go ahead and click on each one and find out how many Christians are in that area, what are they enduring. And I want to highlight just a few of these because it's really important. I mean, this is a part of our body, right? Um, 1 Corinthians 12 says, when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. And I think that's something we need to take on a little bit more. It's very easy for us to not want to think about this and kind of keep them off to the side, but there are brothers and sisters. I want to highlight a few. North Korea, it's the number one worst place to be a Christian. And um, did you guys realize, I was blown away by this, and I didn't really trust their numbers, so I went looking around. 300,000 Christians in North Korea. 300,000. You think, how have they lasted? It's amazing, right? You think under those conditions, um, it's been three generations of idolizing the Kim family, very paranoid kind of dictatorship that's occurring there. Christians are seen as a hostile foreign invader, so they're seen as political enemies. And um, they meet in secret, if they can meet at all. And um, they can be sent to labor camps. There's somewhere between 30 and 70,000 of our brothers and sisters right now in labor camps in North Korea. Isn't that shocking? It's shocking, huh? And, and when you're caught as a Christian, you either get sent to a labor camp or you get killed, and then they do the same to your family whether they're a part of it or not. So there's this whole kind of pressure put on Christians that even their unbelieving families can be sent to these. Um, second worst place would be Afghanistan. Um, we don't know how many Christians are there, but it's a few thousand. Um, different situation there because they're Islamic by constitution, which means no other faith has a, a, can be permitted to exist. They officially don't recognize that there are any anybody but Muslims there. Anyone that converts to Christianity is considered being converting from Islam because that's, in their minds, all that's there. And if you convert, um, you can be killed either by the state or you could be killed by your family. Actually, a lot of times families will kill their own if they become Christians to um, save the uh, family honor. That it's, it's very dishonorable for you to have a Christian um, in your family, and so they'll kill them themselves. So there's two ways to be killed there. Whereas in North Korea, it's more likely the state, maybe in your family, would help hide you. Um, in Afghanistan, you've got enemies on all sides. And it's seen as a betrayal of your country, your tribe, your family. Um, another level, um, if we go all the way over to 46, I think that that's probably closer to what these people in, that were being written to in First Peter were dealing with. But number 46 is Sri Lanka. Um, there are 1.9 million Christians in Sri Lanka. Now, their constitution says it prefers Buddhism, but you can have whatever faith you want. So the state's not going to go after you there. But the problem is there's a ton of very rural areas in Sri Lanka. And so what happens is it's more vigilante local, right? So if you convert from Buddhism, um, you're seen as uh, betraying the community and you can be attacked. In fact, there was a story just late last year where a church was 100 people kind of converged on the church and thrashed it and threatened them and, and um, didn't kill them but threatened to kill them. And that kind of thing would be more common in a place like Sri Lanka. Um, and so this is probably the level of persecution we're talking about in First Peter because the way he talks about the state here in the passage I just read is like, you know, that they reward those who do good and they punish those who do evil. So I don't think he's thinking at this point that Nero's kind of uh, gone on a campaign against Christians. So this is more kind of vigilante, but it's still scary. And you think about like in First Peter, they're in these kind of colonies along the frontier. There's no, no safety there for them. And we're called to remember them, guys. Um, like I said, as 1 Corinthians 12 said, when one member suffers, we all suffer. Another reason we should focus on the persecuted church once in a while is that some of you will be called to minister with them. Some of you are going to be called to minister with them. I originally put to them, but it's more minister with them. Um, and some of you are called to foreign missions, whether you know it or not yet. 
And the places that you're called to go to are very likely going to be somewhere on this list. Most of the places with unreached people are places they don't want us, and Christians minister in those areas. And you think, well, that's kind of far-fetched. No, actually, Lorian is in one of the top countries here on this list, very much on this side of the list um, right now. And so if people come to Christ through her ministry, they will face very severe repercussions that we're going to talk about in a second. So um, it's important that you read this passage in that lens and think about, okay, so if somebody becomes a Christian in a persecuted country, what is their calling there? What are they supposed to do? This passage tells us. Another reason that we should think about the persecuted church, and this was a big thing for me this week, is that they have something to teach us, guys, big time. Okay, we unfortunately idolize so much comfort and security that um, we sometimes have a very difficult time as Americans just even going to church weekly and maybe sharing our faith once in a while. Um, while these people are risking their life and property, imprisonment and death, and it reminded me of that passage in Jeremiah where he says, "If you have raced with men on foot and have grown weary, how will you compete with horses? If you stumble in a safe land." How will you manage in the thickets of the Jordan? And I just think we are not prepared <laughs> like we should be to suffer. And um, it's, they have a lot to teach us. They have a lot to teach us about comfort and security and how Christ is better. And we need to learn this because the things that they're called to do in here, we're called to do in a much easier context. Um, but in Timothy, 2 Timothy, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I think for a lot of us, we need to think, when's the last time I was persecuted, and what does that say? You might say, well, you know, we live in a country without persecution. It's like, well, you know, I would say yes, if we were being very bold about our faith, and if and we still weren't being persecuted, then kind of maybe that would make sense. But their example is something that we really have to think about. We really have to think about, and they have a lot to teach us here. So what I want to do is kind of look at this passage in that framework of to the persecuted church, because that's the original context, and then we're going to kind of listen in. We're going to kind of listen in and see what we can learn from them. And so uh, let's see what Peter actually says to him. And it was a thought experiment when we go through this passage. Think about this being written to a Christian that's in North Korea, or that's written to somebody in Afghanistan, or Sri Lanka, or somewhere like that. What does he tell them to do, and then how does he point them to their ability to keep going under very difficult situations? So first, what does he tell them to do? In three parts here, he tells them to be subject. If you look at verse 13, 18, and then uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he tells these people to be subject. That word there, subject, uh, it's hypotasso. It means to rank yourself under. It means to see somebody and intentionally put yourself under that person's uh, authority. And he says in verse 13 that we're to be subject to every human institution. And then he gives three kind of unbelieving authorities that they might be called to put themselves under. The first would be an unbelieving government. The second one would be an unbelieving master. And then the other one would be an unbelieving husband. And so we'll go through those uh, real quick here. First, an unbelieving government. Look at verse 13. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors who are sent by them to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. It's really interesting. The New Testament is overwhelmingly positive about the value of government. It isn't a very libertarian type book. It, it really puts forward the government as being a good thing. Even though Jesus and the apostles all suffered at the hands of godless government, um, the government's seen as positive and, and an important thing. And what's interesting, too, is that Peter, the one that wrote this, is actually going to be killed by the emperor that he's talking about in just a few years from now. He actually gets killed under Nero. 
And, um, and persecuted Christians are called to subject themselves to the governments that they're under. Um, there would be an exception to that, though, right? They're, they're to subject themselves to the government unless the government calls them to disobey God. So God's law is higher, right? And we know that from, remember on Peter and John, and they, they're preaching the gospel, and they threaten them, and they say, you got to stop doing this. And what do they say? They say, um, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. And then a little later in Acts 5, they say, we must obey God rather than men. And you see that priority. Look at verse 17. It's really cool. This real quick list of imperatives. It says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Do you see the levels? So honor everyone, you know, love the brotherhood. And then look at the difference between the emperor and God. You fear God, you honor the emperor. Those are totally different levels, right? That God's law supersedes the emperor's. And so those in persecuted churches are still evangelized. They still gather, which should be super humbling to us, right? That they still gather. They gather at extreme risk. And um, I don't want to belabor the point, but sometimes we're like, you know, I stayed up kind of late watching Netflix last night, you know? And it's like, these people are, it's like they're trying to figure out how to get together without dying. They wouldn't even understand. We're going to make sure not to let them know that this happens here. Because this would be very discouraging to them. And, and they're also called to evangelize, even though it could cost them property and freedom and families. And this is normal for our people. If you read in Hebrews 10, Verse 32, he says, Recall the former days when you were, after you were enlightened, after you came to Christ, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes public uh, exposure to reproofs and afflictions, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, which were other believers in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And I'm not just, I don't want to just like make you guys feel guilty by their example, but you know what would be really helpful is go on Voice of the Martyrs, listen to their stories, go on YouTube, look up Persecuted Church. If you look up Persecuted Church in like David Platt, you'll find a bunch that he's done. And, um, and just kind of absorb their way of thinking. It's a biblical way of thinking. It's not the way we think. We're like, man, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. That's a biblical way of thinking, though, and so we need them. We need these people, right? We're all in one body with them, and the cool thing is we live in a time when we could actually hear their testimonies and hear what they're going through and hear the way they think about their lives, and it could teach us. They have far more to offer us than we have to offer them. And, and so, but in every other way, they're called to be subject to the government. They're called to be subject in every way they can, except if they're going to disobey God. Next one would be unbelieving masters. Look at verse 18. Servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not just to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Some of these Christians that are born into persecution have the added hardship of being slaves. Think about that in the Roman Empire. A quarter of the Roman Empire were slaves. There was a huge amount of slaves in the Roman Empire. And so just imagine yourself being born, in, born again to Christ into persecution, and then the next layer is, and you're a slave. You just think, how am I supposed to live the Christian life? I don't even have freedom. I live in a place where people don't even really see me as fully human. Aristotle, who was very popular at the time, he did not believe that slaves were capable of deliberate thinking, and he also didn't believe that it was possible to commit a real injustice against a slave. They weren't human enough to where you could really commit an actual injustice against them. And everybody's like, I love Aristotle. Well, read a little deeper, you know. Um, 
But so much so that in verse 20, you see physical beatings were common, right? So here you are, you're a slave in an empire of slaves. You can't just run away, right? Runaway slaves were often crucified for that. And you come to Christ and you think, like, how can I be a Christian? How can I live a life that's valuable to the kingdom when I'm in this kind of situation? And, and it's important, guys, at this stage to remember the context of the letter. This is written to people that are not in power. This is written to persecuted people. Because some people will complain that Peter doesn't take the opportunity here to tell these Christians that they need to tear down the institution of slavery. Would that make sense at this moment? He's writing to people that have no power. Many of them are slaves. And the others have no power and say, you guys got to tear down slavery. They have no ability to do that. You would not write to believers in Afghanistan right now and tell them to change society, right? That's not, that's not even possible. And, and they had no power to do so. Peter here is not condoning slavery, guys. He is not. He, he's trying to encourage people that have no way out how to survive it and how to live valuable lives for Christ. And, and that's why, too, it made no sense when colonial Americans used this passage to, um, to try to um, support their slave owning. Okay? It makes no sense to use this passage that way because this was written to Christians that were not in power to help them endure the nightmare they were in, not to help rich Christians be able to perpetuate a nightmare on other people. It's a misuse of the passage. Do you see that? It's, it's about how Christian slaves can serve their unbelieving captors. And I know a lot of people comment today, they're like, well, you know, you could totally use the Bible to, to, to prove that slavery is okay, and people did that in the past. You can't, guys. If you want to try it, we'll try it later. We'll do a little role play. You can play the part of an American colonial slave owner that wants to prove to me it's okay that you own people, and I will debate you, and we'll use the New Testament. We'll see how it goes. I will smoke you, okay? <laughs> Not because I'm really great at this, but because there is no case to be made. Okay? There's no case to be made. You have to consider the context. This isn't written for that. Per- this is written to people to help them endure. In fact, the New Testament, guys, is completely incompatible with the slave trade. For one, the New Testament directly forbids enslaving people. It's in 1 Timothy 1.10. It has a whole list of sins, including sexual immorality and lying and all these things. And it has enslavers, enslaving people. Enslaving people means to take someone captive in order to sell them into slavery, which is exactly what the American system was. It's directly forbidden in 1 Timothy 1.10. So that's pretty straightforward. The New Testament also forbids racism. If you look at uh, Galatians 3.28, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is not male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And guys, the American slave trade depended on racism. Okay? There's not a way to do this system without first deciding and convincing yourself and convincing others that certain people are worth less than other people. Just like Aristotle did for their slave system. You have to somehow in your mind have this idea. But guys, the New Testament's clear that all human beings are equal in dignity. Okay? The other thing is that the New Testament just straight up forbids being evil to people. Okay, like, we could just start there, right? You're like, that's right. You know, the Bible forbids being evil to people, okay? And Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Like, that should be enough. Like, that's pretty straightforward. Would you like other people to kidnap you and take you to a foreign land and maybe sell your family and beat you and keep you in source? No, the Bible's completely incompatible with that. It's so incompatible with it, guys, that right now there's a museum called the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., and they have on display this Bible. They call it the Slave Bible, and it's a Bible that, the, that missionaries used in the 1800s where they removed all problematic passages, 
from it. So they removed tons. They removed like the Exodus narrative and all kinds of stuff. But of course, they removed Galatians. Of course, they kept this passage in 1 Peter, probably highlighted, right? And they took out all the things that maybe would make slaves feel like they were equal to their captors, right? Um, And the reason they did it is that missionaries wanted to go to the West Indies, and they wanted to evangelize to slaves. And the slave owners were like, nope, you can't do that because if they start learning the Bible, it's going to be all over for us. And they're like, no, 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 what we'll do is we'll, we'll cut out a bunch of it, right? And so that's what they did. They cut out a whole bunch of it. And you think, well, on the one hand, I want to be a missionary of these people. On the other hand, I'm going to try and mislead them. It's like terrible. And if you want to learn more about the ridiculous lengths Christians went to try and condone slavery, um, Jerem Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise, is a book I'm going through right now. Super good, but um, it's full of that kind of stuff. All kinds of things about baptism. You know, there was this whole debate. Like, in the Christian empire, it was always, you know, way back in Europe, it was always, if somebody was baptized believer, like, there's no way that person could ever be enslaved. And so they made this decision, well, you know, we're going to allow uh, slaves to be baptized because then they're going to be on par with us and we'd have to let them free. And, you know, some clergy debated and went, no, 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 we can make sure that in the liturgy it says they're free in Christ, but not actually free. It's crazy stuff. But the historical context here, guys, is Christians that have no power to affect change. And if that's the case, and they're uh, they're enslaved, they're to be subject to their masters. And and an example of that today would be our brothers and sisters in North Korea in labor camps. You know, this would directly apply to them right now. Um, What about those who needed to be subject to their unbelieving husbands? Look at verse 1. Wives, this is in chapter 3, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, we're going to dig into the rest of that passage next week to look at um, husbands and wives. But notice that phrase, some do not obey the word. If you look a little further up in 1 Peter chapter 2, it uses the same terminology um, in, in the beginning of chapter 2. And it's the, this would be some Christians were born not only into persecution in this first century context, but they had the added burden of being wives of unbelieving husbands. And guys, in the first century Rome, you were not allowed to pick your own religion if you're a wife. Plutarch, who was very um, well regarded then, he said this, A wife ought not to make her own friends, but enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. And the gods are the first and most important friends. Therefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and know only the gods her husband believes in and to shut the front door tight on any strange rituals and outlandish superstitions. And so they didn't have that freedom. Imagine that. Imagine you're, you're a, a wife in that first century context. You come to Christ and, and your husband is not a believer and you have no freedom to, to, to follow Christ. Uh, imagine that in a country on our list like Afghanistan or Saudi Arabia or something like that. That happens today. And in those cases... A wife was to be subject to her husband. He says, she says that there, just like it would be today, but with an added difficulty, right? An added difficulty. And not only to be subject to all these uh, authorities, but to do them good. Look at verse 15. And this is the will of God, that by doing good, right, is to do them good. Why? The reason is, is to, be, to be servants for their salvation, why would, why would they, why would we subject ourselves, put ourselves under people, unbelieving people, that are authorities in our lives? And he says, we do it to do good to them and to be servants for their salvation. Look at verse 15. First, to silence slander. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. There was a lot of ignorant talk about Christians back in that time. 
They believed Christians were cannibals. That was the word on the street. Um, that they uh, practiced incest. Uh, that they were uh, atheists. Um, that they hated their country. That they hated their society. I mean, lots of false things being said about Christians. And he's saying here that by doing good, they were to put them to silence. We still have that calling today. There's a lot of things people say about Christians in our, in our nation, right? About Christians, they're hypocritical and that they're unloving and they're hateful and they're prideful and all these things. And we can't change what the whole nation believes about Christians, but we do have an effect on the people that we are in, to be subject to, right? We all have people, we have bosses, we have customers, we have um, people in our lives that are not believers and we're to, called to subject ourselves to them so that they, it would put to silence foolish talk about Christianity, and it was also to lead them to Christ. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. It's a different definition of winning, huh? <laughs> that they might be won without a word, right? That we serve unbelieving authorities, and they are called to do the same, to be servants of their salvation. And you know what? It worked. You think about the Roman Empire? You think about that'll never work. It did work. <laughs> it did work. Within a couple hundred years, I mean, Christianity took over the Roman Empire. How? Not by, you know, a bloody revolt or anything like that. It was by doing exactly what God's called us to do in our society. And, um, and, and this is where we can learn from the persecuted church, guys, because we too are called to serve people. We're called to serve for their salvation. And we have a lot more freedom, and we can thankfully avoid all kinds of abuse that they couldn't, and many of our brothers and sisters can't right now. But we're called to put ourselves under people for the sake of, of showing them Christ. And, and we have them as an example for us. How, how do they keep going, though? That's a hard calling, especially when we think about the persecuted church. That is a super hard calling. Some of you have super hard callings in that area. How do you keep going? And I want to show you how Peter tells them to keep going. Because he, he doesn't just tell them to be subject, but in every case he points them to the power to do this. Um, take a look at, um, in, in verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Do you notice what he said? For the Lord's sake. Right? Or verse 15, be subject for this is the will of God. Or verse 16, be subject because you're living as servants of God. Or verse 19, be subject mindful of God. Or verse 20, be subject because it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. Or verse 4, it's a precious thing in the sight of God. And so what he's pointing to is that the secret to being able to serve unbelieving people as servants for their salvation is by um, serving a, the true master. Right? It's, it, there's a master that's been put above us, but then there's a master above him, and we're serving him. Look at verse 16. He says that's where true freedom is. He says, living as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. True Christian freedom, guys, is not freedom to avoid service. It's freedom to serve Jesus. You know, it's freedom to serve a better master. And, and the gospel frees us in our service. It frees us in a bunch of ways. The gospel frees us from earning, doesn't it? Gospel frees us from earning. Some of you guys came out of very, like, works-based type religion, and, and you came to understand the gospel, and you came to understand that Jesus earned it all for you, and it gave you a new freedom in life. It gave you a freedom from earning. There's a freedom from earning. Jesus gives us a freedom from guilt, right? People say, oh, yeah, Christianity, it's all about guilt. It's all about getting rid of guilt, right? Jesus removes our guilt. He's taken our guilt from us. He gives us a freedom from guilt. Jesus gives us a freedom from sin's reign, right? That we were subject to, the, to sin's reign, sin's rule over us, and he frees us more and more from the reign of sin. And he frees us from sin, not to sin. 
lot of times in our society, Christians are pretty much obsessed with how much they could get away with and still be a Christian. But when you look at what Jesus offers here, he offers us freedom from sin, not to sin. I mean, if you're looking for freedom to sin, I don't know what you're looking for. We're, looking, we're after different things. You're after something completely different than Christianity is. Christianity is about having freedom from sin. True freedom, guys. True freedom is this. True freedom is the desire to do what is right and the ability to do it. Wouldn't you say that's true freedom? True freedom would be your heart wants to do what's right and your heart's able to do it. That's true freedom. And that's the freedom that Jesus gives. And, and the gospel frees us, guys, from all these lesser masters to serve a greater master. And so in all three of these situations, he's calling them to say, yeah, you have a master you have to serve in your life, but serve the greater master. And that's what's going to give you the power to do it. Keep your eyes on the fact that you're serving God. True Christian freedom isn't freedom from service. It's freedom to serve a better master. That's what he's talking about in verse 16. Do you know how to do that? I think that'd be something to really think about this morning. Do you know how to serve a lesser master but you're really serving the greater master, Jesus. Have you learned that trick, okay? Discipleship is learning to do all the things Christ commanded, and that's actually a Christian skill that we all need to develop. And the, the, the skill is this, is that I'm called to serve you, I'm going to serve you, but as I'm serving you, my eyes are here on Jesus. That I, I have an ability to serve lesser masters because I'm serving a greater master. That's the thing that frees us to really serve people for their salvation. Because if it's always like, I'm going to serve this person, as long as this person really kind of meets my needs and appreciates me and does all the things I want them to do, we're dead. Okay? Like, that's not going to last even a day, right? But if I can serve this person while actually serving Jesus, I'm unstoppable, Right? And that's the thing. Have you learned to do that? Have you learned to serve the person right in front of you while your heart is actually serving Christ? Super important. That's how the persecuted church does it, right? And they, they've learned to serve Christ, not their captors. And it's a beautiful thing. And, and the really beautiful thing, guys, is what happens in, the, in chapter 2 here because he says that their master became a servant. I think this is super cool. So you've got these people that are called to be servants. They don't have power. And then what, uh, what Peter directs him to is he shows him, you know what, the master you serve became a servant. Um, I don't know if you guys realize this, but this is um, kind of put in the format of a household code. So in Roman society, they had all these household codes. Like, this is what a wife does, this is what a husband does, here's what the kids do, here's what the slaves do. It was like all organized, like a rule list. And these were all over the place. Different philosophers had different ones. And it looks like he's doing that, right? He says, like, be subject to the government, servants do this, and then he says wives do this, and then in seven, husbands do this. It's a household code. What does he put right in the middle of the household code? He puts Isaiah 50, 53 right in the middle of the household code. It's really interesting. Check it out. He says, for this you've been called, verse 21, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For we were straying like sheep, but now we've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Peter's quoting Isaiah 53 there, which was a 700-year-old prophecy at the time, about how one day this servant, this slave, was going to come on the scene, and he was going to serve and, and die, really grisly death, for the sins of the people. 
And it was really mysterious at the time. Like, who is this? What's going on here? You know, and what Peter does is he says that that suffering servant, that suffering slave, is our master Jesus. Isn't that cool? Think of how that would elevate the status of these servants, of these slaves. To be like, you know what? Actually, your God came as a servant. He came as the suffering slave of Isaiah 53. You know, because they were thinking like, how can I, such a powerless person, a slave, living this kind of life, do anything worthy of God? And, and Peter's saying, you know what? Actually, Jesus, your master, became a suffering slave. And he was crucified as a slave's death, right? They, they must have, there must be a way to live your life for the glory of God, even in a lowly state. Jesus did it. Isn't that amazing? You just think like the dignity that gave those people. People that, you know, Roman society thought weren't even really fully human. He says, no. He says, your God actually came as a suffering slave, as a servant. And, um, and so Jesus, he, he didn't just die for the lowly, he died with them. When you think about all these people that are being persecuted right now, Jesus not only died for the persecuted, he was persecuted. He's actually endured the same persecution that any of us or any of them will endure. And he's shown us how to glorify God through it. Look at verse 21. What was Jesus' secret for glorifying God through his suffering? And it's in verse 23. It says, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He did exactly the same thing we're called to do. As he was serving on this level, he was thinking to his father. He was entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is important, guys. I mean, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I, I just think this is, would be a great time for us to start just really be encouraged by the persecuted church. I mean, go on Voice of the Martyrs website, look at that, or go on YouTube, look up persecuted church. Get to know them. They're your brothers and sisters. We have very unique opportunity to get to know our extended family around the world. Get to know them. Pray for them. Do you guys realize, at my research this week, it was like the number one thing the persecuted church wants from the church in America is that we pray for them. Isn't that interesting? They don't say like, send some fighter jets, send this, get us out of here. That's not what they're asking for. They say, pray for us. We could do that. And you think, well, does that do anything? It does do something. You think about in, uh, in Acts, when they prayed for Peter to get out of prison. He got released from prison. You remember, he shows up at the door and they don't believe it's him, you know? So they were like praying, but they weren't really sure it was going to happen. But it did happen, you know? And like we can be a part of praying to sustain them through this and even for their liberation. And we need to really, guys, learn from them. I can't tell you how much we can get from just hearing them out. Hearing the way they look at the world. I mean, it'll change the way you look at your own life. I mean, it'll change the things you call a trial, you call suffering. And this isn't to shame you or anything like that. It's just like, man, we could be living so much richer lives by looking at their example. But ultimately, you know what the persecuted church would want us to do? Look at Christ. Look at Christ, our master who became a servant for our salvation. And that's what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is an invitation to meditate on Jesus our God who became a servant. I just want to remind you again, 1 Peter 2, 24 says this. Listen to the words in here. Peter's so graphic because Peter was there. Okay? Peter's so graphic about the crucifixion and about Jesus' sufferings because, remember, he ran away, but he's popping in and out, and he's seeing this. He knows what this looked like. Listen to the way he describes the cross. So gritty. He says, I love he himself. That's a great way to start. He himself, God himself, Jesus himself. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
By his wounds you have been healed. For we were straying like sheep, but now we've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Um, a couple things to think about as we take communion. That God himself bore your sins, your sins. And I know for some of you, that's very hard to fully enjoy the fact that your sins have been borne by another. They're gone. You don't bear them anymore. I think a lot of times we try to carry them around, right? Like Pilgrim's Progress, carrying around the burden on our back, carrying around a stain. And if you're trusting in Christ, he bore your sins. And to say that you still bear them is to say that maybe he didn't bear them all the way. We don't want to do that. He bore our sins himself. He himself, God himself bore them, taken care of. I love in his body on the tree. Can't get more gritty than that, right? He bore our sins, not spiritually only, but in his body on the tree. On rough wood he was nailed to, through his wrists and through his feet, stabbed in the side. And then it says, by his wounds you have been healed. There's something beautifully poetic about that, right? You've been healed by his wounds. By the wounds of another person, you've been healed. Um, I was, there was a guy that came to Christ in our college ministry years ago, and he was from Siberia. And he kept on saying to me, he goes, he goes, I can't get over it, Eric, but that man died for me. And I was like, yeah, I know. And he's like, no, 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 no. A man died for me. It was so graphic to him that a man died for him. He knew he was God, but he died for him. His wounds have healed us, guys. If you believe that, then the Lord's Supper is for you. And then he says, for we all strayed like sheep. Have you been straying? Have you guys been straying? You don't have to put your hands up. Maybe you've been straying in visible ways that the person right next to you knows. Maybe you've been straying in ways in your heart. It says, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Don't you want that? Don't you want that when you're straying? Doesn't that sound comfortable? Let's return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Isn't that good? The shepherd and overseer of your souls. It says, return to me. If you're ready to return and you've been straying, you're ready to return, then the Lord's Supper is for you. A lot of times we think, oh, well, you know, if I've been sinning this week or whatever, then I can't take it. Well, then no one would take it, right? The Lord's Supper, guys, is not a reward for the righteous. It's food for sinners. And so if you're ready to return, then you take it. Let me read this from the Heidelberg Catechism. It says this, who may take the Lord's table? And it says this, this is what qualifies you to come forward and take the Lord's table. Those who are displeased with themselves for their sin. Check, check. Yet trust that these are forgiven them and that their remaining infirmity is covered by the passion and death of Christ. Check. Who are desiring more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their lives. And then he says, but the impenitent and hypocrites eat and drink judgment to themselves. He's saying the one type of person that should not come is one that doesn't want to repent and one that doesn't believe. But if you repent and you believe, then you come forward and take this. Because guys, this is actually one of the ways that he feeds us to strengthen us so that we can die to sin and live to righteousness. A lot of times we'll have people in the church that actually have repented of their sin and and um, are ready to repent of it now, and they don't take the Lord's Supper. And what you're not doing there is you're not actually taking one of the foods he's designed to give you a stronger Christian life. So you should take it. Um, one last thing to remind you of, as we take this, let's remember the persecuted church. And so when Chad and them come up, Chad's going to lead us in some prayer for the persecuted church, I think probably after the second song. And um, we're going to have a time to, to remember and pray for them. It's like Hebrews 13 says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you yourself are in the body. 
If one member suffers, we all suffer together. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for our spiritual ancestors who went before us at great cost. And Lord, we live in a very fragmented time. Many of us probably don't even know the names of our great-grandparents or our great-great-grandparents, and yet we have these spiritual ancestors, Lord, that went before us and, and have suffered greatly to, to follow you. And we pray, Lord, that we would be emboldened by them, that we would learn from them. Lord, show us how to be subject to every human institution to serve for the salvation of others. Lord, we pray for those who are around the, church, around the world that are in churches or maybe they're at home right now just meditating on one little passage of Scripture they might have because they just can't go anywhere without being discovered. Um, Lord, we, just, we pray for them right now as we take communion. Lord, help us to remember that we take it as a global, international church. And Lord, help us to remember them. And even more, Lord, help us to remember your son who came as a servant. We just thank you so much for that. We thank you that you're that kind of God. That, that you're, you're that kind of God that, that came lowly as a servant to offer yourself for our sins. We just can't even believe that's amazing. And so we pray, Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, that you would remind us of that, that you would help us to find our comfort in his wounds, that by his wounds we have been healed. And we pray, Lord, that our worship would be something that would be acceptable to you. We pray, Lord, that the Lamb would receive all the rewards due for his sufferings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.